Hey, welcome back to the Backyard Professor Live. I have with me co-hosting your favorite librarian, Rebecca Biblioteca. How you doing tonight, Rebecca? You know, I'm here and I'm excited to be here. I have to say I'm a little surprised you asked me to come back because last time all we did is throw books. I'm still <laughs> cleaning up from what we did last time. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I'm the idiot that threw too many books. I threw too many through the screen, didn't I? <laughs> well, I promise I will only throw two of them tonight. Two. Well, yeah, given our topic tonight, we might actually end up throwing books again. It's going to be pretty interesting. Now, we're not going to do any book throwing. We are going to do, with Charlie Harrell, we are going to do scripture interpretation throwing. Charlie has a fantastic program tonight. We are going to be talking about the interpretation by Joseph Smith of the prophecy of Elijah and the interpretation of Malachi in the restoration of the priesthood. So I am looking forward to that. Why don't we get started and we will bring on Charlie just shortly. <laughs> Rebecca, did you have as much fun at Thrive Unite yesterday as I did? I did have a wonderful time. I got to MC the Thrive event in Lehigh. So that was really fun. Yeah. And we had an amazing guest. We had Dr. Stephen Hassan. So that was absolutely incredible mm -hmm. to have him talk to us. We had a really good turnout and it was wonderful. How was your Thrive? It was fun. Hold on. I'm moving my desk back so yeah. the light can show my... Bright, shiny, happy, smiling. I, I didn't know if it was an earthquake or something was happening. I wasn't sure well, if I, I needed to call 911 for you. Well, the dumb thing weighs 200 tons. So, um, yeah, we did. We had a, I, I was pleasantly surprised at the amount of people that showed up in, in our Thrive. Uh, there is clearly a need for it. And it is a good thing because we are helping people realize that they do have self-worth. I was really intrigued and I was especially grateful that the emphasis appeared to be, this is a scary time to be in life. I mean, we had people ranging from the ages. We had teenagers all the way up to retired folks all over, all over the age range. Uh, every walk of life, they came from four different states. 
to attend. Anthony Miller was one of the guest speakers. And oh. then um, Gabby or Abby Accord. Accord. Yes to us yeah oh you had a great program then wow that's impressive yeah and you fun. you didn't speak you were not a speaker you know what i only found out about this one when i was in saint george oh. <laughs> it's radio free mormon and john delin and bill will down ah. there and so i asked the the moderate the guy who put it together uh hepworth wayne hepworth i said how come idol falls doesn't have one of these and he said they do and so, but I did meet with some folks there who I'm already on uh, several different speaking schedules when they, they came running up to me and said, you're the backyard professor. I've been wanting to meet you so bad. I need you to speak of this and this. And so, yeah. Uh -oh. There you uh, go. You're booked. <laughs> well, holy nightmare, Batman. <laughs> It'll be a lot of fun. Looks like we have a good, good group of folks here. Doug, Vincent, Mosia. Mark Christman, I saw you, Radio Free Mormon. Liz, good to see you. Yeah, baby, for Mark Crispin. Yeah, I always do that for him. I'm just saying. Lee Mortensen, how you doing? Welcome. Booker Preston, good to see you. Hello from Nevada. Hey, all of you folks who are new, I know we're getting quite a few new subscribers. We want to welcome you and uh, let you know that this is the best live program on the planet directly behind Mormonism Live. If, if I say I'm better than Mormonism Live, I'm going to get massacred. So Mormonism Live is number one. Well, John DeLynn's Mormon Stories is number one. Mormonism Live is a very, very close number two. And the Backyard Professor is sitting in Mormonism Live's lap as number three. And Rebecca Biblioteca Mormonish is number four, directly up there also. So oh ruminations and emancipating your mind and all that. Um, hey, I have to say, I'm going to do a quick plug for your podcast, Rebecca. Um I watched the Mormonish podcast Friday when it was, I, I was just, I had just missed it, but they did it Friday on, what was the name of that with you? and? Uh, um, let me think, what was the title? Um, now, now, of course, I've drawn a complete blank on it, but it was, sorry, it was basically... It was basically talking about um, church finance. They put out an essay, unbeknownst to a lot of people, on March yes. 10th that was called Church Finances. And I, yes. we made the prediction, we thought, because probably a lot of people are, are asking, you know, what, looking it up, what do, what do we say to people who are talking about, you know, in light of the SEC report? And so we just kind of went through paragraph by paragraph of this church essay that was just put out. It's a topic essay, if you're familiar with those, and just kind of went through where they tried to make everything sound like this is just business as usual, nothing to see here, it's fine, and kind of going back through the history of church finance. So it was very interesting to research, I will say that. I'm here to tell you, I'm going to put the backyard professor's stamp of approval on that one. I was shocked. Shocked, I tell you. No, it was exceptionally excellent. Hey, where'd Charlie go? Uh-oh. Has our guest bailed ship? Our guest bolted. No, he must have been. I'm sure he'll be back. <laughs> well, I hope so. I hope he can. Yeah, there I hope is. so too. While he's here, I'm going to hurry up and put him on. Let him on. Everybody <laughs> like that, Charlie. Anyway, we have a great show for you tonight. Rebecca has so kindly offered to co-host with me, and so we're going to have 
a lot of fun. Um, we are going to have some information tonight that I am quite certain a lot of you have never heard. Charlie Harrell is one of the great scholars of Mormonism. The more I read, the more I talk with him about this book, the more I get to know him. This is my doctrine, the development of Mormon doctrine. Now, listen, you guys, we want to support quality scholarship because you guys like our podcasts. Mormonish, those guys, her and Jordan, Rebecca and Jordan, work their butts off to get us quality, accurate historical information. I'm doing the same. John DeLynn does the same. Bill Rill and Radio Free Mormon does the same. Scott at Rammy Umpton Ruminations. Uh, Nemo the Mormon. There are a boatload of podcasters here who are trying to bring you the information that guess what you have not gotten because it's been hidden from you now this is the whole theme of the reason i'm here because i'm putting back in the information that they took out of sunday school so help us support good scholarship like this so that charlie can do some more for us as well get this book. It is mind-bogglingly, overwhelmingly awesome. So with that introduction, now that I've embarrassed Charlie and I have my co-host here ready to romp, let's welcome Charlie Harrell. Good evening, Charlie. How's it going? Hello, Carrie. Hello, Rebecca. Good to be here again. It that is introduction crazy. was way over the top. <laughs> I'm way over the top because I have a good co-host tonight. There you go. Blame me. <laughs> well, that's what a man does, you know. You always blame the woman. I mean, it happens. That's right. You started that major stupid fiasco. Oh, dear. Let's not go there. To, according to the record, which was written by the men. <laughs> right. So, oh, you just can't win. No, no, we have arguments against that. It's okay, Rebecca. We will <laughs> we do, do podcasts on that. Was Eve to blame after all? Paul oh, might have got his theology ski wampus. So, you know, there's hope. So, Charlie, um, we have a pretty good audience. It looks like there's quite a few people here. And I, I, I have read this. We're talking about the restoration of the priesthood. Now, we talked about that last time also, but there is so much to this subject. This is the core. This is one of the anchors of the church. And yet with your analysis, you've shown that we have reason to take another more careful look. So why don't you just pick up from there and share with us what you have discovered about this Elijah priesthood concept. Yeah, very interesting concept. Oh, boy. Um, you know, there are three chapters that I dedicated to the restoration, and I could have done it all in one, but there are several strands of the restoration. Uh, in the first instance of the first chapter, uh, which was chapter three, we talked about prophecies uh, of Joseph Smith and of the restoration of the uh, of all things, the dispensation of the fullness of times, uh, and kind of what those concepts meant in their original context and how they were misinterpreted uh, 
by Joseph Smith and early saints and continue to be misused in the church today. In chapter four, I discuss the restoration of the priesthood and then also the restoration of the church because those two are tightly connected, right? Uh, you can't have the church without the priesthood. So it was essential that the priesthood be restored. I mean, that's the, the LDS narrative in order to have Christ's church again upon the earth. And of course, we believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church. And uh, we'll look at some of those ideas and how it is uh, not the same at all, right? Uh, many differences between the church today and the church as it was at the time of Christ. And we talked about the fact that uh, it's likely or it's unlikely that Jesus even organized a church. He had followers and he was uh, getting ready for the kingdom of God to be ushered in on the earth. Uh, it was not a, a matter of let's organize a church that can sustain Christianity for the next 2000 years till I come again. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that, that when we, again, we study the gospels sincerely. I mean, uh, the emphasis is always on the kingdom of God. Mm. And so I, my suspicion, this is just purely my speculation, but I bet I could find some support for it. Once Jordan, Rebecca's co-host starts researching it for me. <laughs> He's good. He's that good. He's really good. And his name is Landon. I Landon. Know. That's hard to know. <laughs> Think of this. I'm not taking off. I'm Landon. That's how I remember <laughs> Oh, yes. off. I'm like, okay. Uh, yeah, he's very smart. Brilliant. I apologize to you, Jordan. Oh. <laughs> Come on, I'm the host. I can get away with crap. You're the host. Me. You can do what you want. I think what happens with Joseph Smith is he conflates the two, the church and the kingdom. Yeah. So anyway, Christians in general have done that. So Joseph picks up right where Protestantism, well, he was right in the middle of all of that. Uh, the great, the second great awakening, uh, picked up all of the theological ideas of the time and ran with them and uh, revised them dramatically at the same time. So, yeah, the uh, restoration of the priesthood and the church um, uh, is interesting because we also have developed quite a few biblical proof texts to demonstrate that this restoration of the priesthood in the church was foretold by ancient prophets going clear back to the Old Testament times. One of the most off-cited passages for the restoration of the priesthood that I start out with is the uh, prophecy in Malachi Chapter 4, verses 5 to 6. Yeah. Um, do either of you two have that there? Oh, now yeah. I feel like I'm in a gospel doctrine class. You, are, <laughs> you scared me for a minute. You, you need to pretend. I don't want you to go to sleep. Okay. I'm I would never read. go I'm to sleep. Go I do not have my scriptures with me. I am yeah. so sorry. I have many other books. but That's, all right. <laughs> That's it. Rebecca, you're going oh, to close in prayer. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, you're you're all familiar with it. I just want to make sure that because we're going to be using this as a takeoff point, um, right. 
Malachi, well, Malachi four, five to six. Five uh, to six. We're all familiar with. Carrie, you got it? Yeah. Okay. Want to read it? I get to go to the front of the class. Oh. You have to read it in your seat. I'm sorry. Okay. Behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with the curse. Okay, thanks. Yep. Um, so interesting passage. You know, if, if anybody were to read that outside of the church, without the knowledge, the, the indoctrination of the church, what does it sound like there? Does it sound like some priesthood is going to be restored? I don't think priesthood was even mentioned, was it, Rebecca? I didn't know. No, it. it sounds to me like you would think about something like uh, family, uh, maybe family history. That's where, where I'm more familiar with that. But I would never think that priesthood was involved in that. It would, it would be more like um, your legacy or your, you know, something like that. Family, well, generations back and forth. That's how I would take it. Yeah. Generational or even mm -hmm. within a living family, maybe mm -hmm. to improve harmonious relationships right. in the family, you know, to reconcile parents to children, children to parents, more or less, right? So the way the church understands this passage today is that Elijah would come before the second coming and would do basically three things. He would uh, restore the, uh, the sealing power of the priesthood. He would restore the efficacy of the priesthood so that ordinances that are performed here on earth are recognized, they're valid, they're, they're bound in heaven. And third, he would restore the work for the dead right? To be able to redeem the dead. Those are the three major pillars. And these are all gathered from these disparate teachings of Joseph Smith. They're kind of uh, conflated themselves because Joseph Smith conflated a lot of his, a lot of the biblical passages to come up with his disparate teachings. So, Kerry, would you mind putting the chart up that yeah, we showed on Malachi. So this is, I, I apologize, it's a little bit busy, but this is so convoluted and messy, the development of the, the restoration of this sealing power uh, slash binding power slash work for the dead that, that Elijah restored that I wanted to show this passage. You may need to enlarge your screens if uh, if you want to read it. But yeah, uh, so so you Christians, you you get a whoop for joy because you don't have to go through all of this noise. It's only for the Mormons. <laughs> that is right. You get to keep the simple reading of Malachi and its basic interpretation in the New Testament, and pretty much leave it at that. It's important, though, to, to consider that Elijah didn't perform ordinances. 
right? That's that's under that first box. So we're starting on the left there, that Malachi 4, 5 to 6. Basically, he's going to bring families together and to God. Uh, he's trying to get these generational things back together so that Israel can get back on the right page. Otherwise, the earth's going to be utterly wasted at Christ's coming. Not in the sense that uh, they're in an LDS, from an LDS point of view, that um, they won't be able to do ordinance work and won't have the ordinances of exaltation without Elijah, but in the sense that uh, the Lord is going to, God is going to obliterate the earth. You know, he's going to destroy it. That's the sense that it, it really conveys. So that, that makes Elijah pretty doggone important then. Seems like it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To the, to the uh, Israelites he was. So, but he didn't perform ordinances. He didn't uh, seal anyone together or to anyone else or to eternal life. He didn't seal people up to eternal life. <laughs> and he lived before there was any work for the dead because there was no work for the dead in Mormon theology, at least, till Christ opened the prison doors, right? And inaugurated that work for the dead. So Elijah lived way before that time. And so we have him, or Mormonism has him coming back to restore these authorities and, and blessings that he never himself enjoyed or experienced. Hmm. <laughs> so beginning with that, the first thing we find in the pedigree in Scripture is in the New Testament, where uh, Jesus talks about Elias coming. So here we jump over the 1835 to 1838. By the way, um, let's, let's go ahead and start there because that other is going to go down a different thread. So in the early church, if you look at uh, sections in the Doctrine and Covenants, um, wherever that prophecy is given, it doesn't convey anything. There's no mention at all about any kind of restoration of priesthood, authority, sealing power, work for the dead. Nothing like that is ever mentioned um, from at least 1830 to 1838. So that means none of the Book of Commandments had anything. That's right. The Book of Commandments, the, the first 65 um, uh, sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, in fact, don't even mention priesthood. Um, so there's hmm. nothing about authority being restored uh, or that uh, Malachi had, or Elijah had anything to do with authority. Hmm. Um, and, and consider the fact that this passage, this prophecy appears in the Book of Mormon. It appears in the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, in early passages in the book, in the, the Doctrine and Covenants, paraphrasing it. But nowhere does it deviate from 
the what we find find in the King James version of the Bible. So, so let me let me rephrase. I'm going to pull a John Delenn on 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 my audience. So, to paraphrase, even though it is in the Book of Mormon, and even though it is in the early sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, there's no discussion of priesthood associated with this. Is that what you're saying in the Book That's of Mormon? Correct. That's correct. Even um, in the Book of Mormon, huh? In the Book of Mormon, in the Doctrine and Covenants, in Joseph Smith's translation of Malachi. In fact, Joseph Smith, when he went through and revised Malachi, he wrote correct above the, the book, uh, indicating that it is good as it stands. So oh, one would really, think, really, yeah. seriously. Yeah. Now, that so, would have been in 1831, right? Am I, uh, in 1831, 1832, yeah, in that time period. Oh, he wrote, oh, how interesting. Yeah. Wow. So now we find him, and, and the reason for mentioning all of that is because we have this section 13 of the Doctrine and Covenants that wasn't added until the later uh, that was an 1838 um, account of the uh, uh, the first vision, as you're aware of. And so that was taken from Joseph Smith's history, put in as a section in the Doctrine and Covenants. And as you recall, Joseph Smith said that he was a little bit surprised because when Moroni appeared to him, he quoted the prophecy of Malachi, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, with some variation. That variation was, I'm, I'm straining my eyes to read that uh, chart. So the arrow <laughs> down in May 1838, which is backdated to 1823 when uh, Moroni appeared to him, he said that instead of uh, turning the hearts of the fathers to children, children of the fathers, that Elijah would reveal the priesthood. An interesting expression. And he would plant the promises made to the fathers in the hearts of the children. <clears throat> so that's a significant difference in wording. You know, yeah. there's nothing about priesthood. And all of a sudden, we have. Moroni telling Joseph Smith that Elijah would reveal the priesthood and plant the promises made to the fathers in the hearts of the children. So, so you're saying that is an 1838 concept uh, retrofitted to the to the earlier revelation? That wouldn't have been in the Book of Commandments, would it? That's right. It wasn't there. But when the Doctrine and Covenants uh, was later published, I can't remember what edition, that's when that was put in. But it was after 1838 because uh, that's when he recorded that account. Rebecca, would I be wrong in thinking that that doesn't pass the smell test? Well, I was also going to use the word retrofit, but you used it. So I will say conveniently backdated. Backdated. <laughs> I think 
both apply. Maybe a little gaslighting. Yeah, a little gaslighting in that he's saying, well, of course I mentioned that before. Didn't I tell you about Moroni? (laughs) (laughs) How did you miss that? Yeah. And and if if that was, if that made such an impression on him, that he could remember that in 1838, uh, how many years later is that? 15 years later, gosh, wouldn't he have at least have put that into the inspired translation of the Bible, Joseph Smith translation, uh, and other places where that's recorded? It's just kind of unbelievable. But it's, so it's anachronistic, it's backdated, and it's anachronistic, uh, on several levels, the fact that he did that before, or, or that he said that Moroni said that when he didn't, and put that in his mouth, retrofit it back there into 1823 is one thing. But then to include things like the priesthood, that he would reveal the priest priesthood wasn't even a concept, wasn't even an idea back in 1823. Wasn't until uh, after the church was organized, uh, that yeah. priesthood started to become a thing. And we'll talk and, about that. And in none of the scriptures of any of the ancient prophets either. That's I right. mean, if, if his 1831 JST can be believed, he said it was correct as it was. If it wasn't discussed in the Book of Mormon, the most correct book on the face of the earth, and a man can get closer to God by abiding by its precepts, I would have thought that would have been pretty cotton picking important to expound on, but fascinating. You would think. So that's the first step in the evolution of, uh, I'm, I'm going to call this strand the sealing power of Elijah, because there's also the Elias of the restoration that gets worked into this that's that second column Mm -hmm. and then there's the third column the last column out at the end which is that spirit of elias that joseph smith introduces later on Mm -hmm. all conflating different passages primarily malachi and the passage in the new testament i think it's matthew 17 is it um, oh, look, you know, keep looking. Elijah, uh, Jesus talks about uh, Elijah having already come. Luke 1 17. Um, there's several places in the New Testament where that's spoken of. Oh, yeah, that's Matthew 17 10 through 13. Yeah, that's yeah. where he actually says that uh, <laughs> Elijah came, but it was John the Baptist. Yeah, or Elias. Yes, and so here we have, uh, and we'll get a, we'll get to that thread, but let's stay on this track. Right. Uh, so then, in July eighteen thirty nine, I think that says, if I can see that, um, I should expand mine here. So I can say, okay, here we go. Um, he talks about the dead joining with the living to build God's kingdom. So Mm -hmm. here he says, he quotes Malachi, Joseph Smith, and he said that the dead are going to join, the the dead fathers are going to 
join hand-to-hand with their living children on earth to build up God's kingdom. It's going to be an all-out effort on this side of the veil as well as the other. But again, no mention of any work for the dead or sealing power, only that we've got parents and children on both sides of the veil working together, joining hands in, hand in hand to bring to pass the kingdom of God and God's kingdom here on earth. So keep in mind that prior to this time, when um, Malachi's prophecy was used in LDS discourse prior to 1838, uh, when Joseph Smith had that other interpretation, the saints in all the writings, whenever they talked about uh, Malachi and the coming of Elijah, it was in reference to simply turning hearts, turning the affections of the children to the parents and parents to children. Uh, and usually, I can't think of an instance where it included people on the other side of the veil. It was just, let's let's build harmony in the home, right? Kind of a thing. Yeah. Okay, so here we have another step in the progression. So from we went to revealing the priesthood, which, what does that even mean, revealing the priesthood? Uh, by the way, Joseph Smith at this time was working on the book of Abraham. Uh, he had done part of the book of Abraham chapters one through most of two, at least, uh, in 1835. And that's where you find those expressions, reveal the priesthood. I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's an expression we wouldn't use today to talk about what did he do? He, he brought back the priesthood. He restored priesthood. But what do you mean reveal the priesthood? That's one of the explanations in the facsimile number two, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. That's how he described it in facsimile. Yes. Yeah. The, the God revealing the priesthood. Oh, right. very interesting. Charlie, that's awesome. Yeah. You also find in Abraham the expression of uh, uh, the promises made to the fathers. So Abraham was saying, you know, I, I thought for the promises of the fathers, and, and um, I, I felt like I had a right to enjoy those promises, in particular the right to the priesthood. So um, those kinds, of, those expressions of planting the promises of the fathers in the hearts of the children and revealing the priesthood. Those were ideas that were floating around in Joseph's mind during that period of time. Um, so back to the chart, Carrie. Yes. Yeah, let's, okay. This, this is really... So I'm we're seeing a development. People yeah, we're see, no, no, we're seeing a development through but the that's it. There's a development going on. And you can you can gloss over all this and just say, ah, he's kind of just saying the same thing over and over. He's saying it in different ways. No, he's not. No, there's not. an evolution of, of thought here, and it isn't always linear. He bounces around and says, Well, Elijah's gonna do this. No, he's gonna do this. And and by the way, Elijah appeared by this time in the Kirtland Temple, didn't he? April 3rd, 
1836. He appears in the Kirtland Temple. And there, the passage in Malachi is quoted just straight from the King James Version. There's no variation. There's no mention of Elijah appeared to restore the sealing power or to restore work for the dead. No mention at all. So you have this event of Elijah coming and Malachi's prophecy cited, but nothing. You know, it's it's dead silence on anything that that he would have been meaningfully involved in or necessary for for several years. So can I did you didn't you do a podcast, Rebecca, on this Elias Elijah thing in the Kirtland Temple? I don't think we did. I think we've mentioned it at different times on different topics. So we didn't. But my observation here is, again, I think I'll, I'll just use the word gaslighting. It's it's like giving this incredible weight and importance to these kind of ancillary events. But overall, he'll be able to say later, I told you all about this. Yes. <laughs> this you know, this is important. This is from antiquity. Don't you remember? I mean, it's just that yes. sense that and they're so kind of confused. Going, OK, yeah, I guess, you know, it's sort of them leading them down this path, almost like, you know, a frog that gets into a pot of water that isn't boiling suddenly, yeah. you know, step by step manipulation throughout it. And by the end, you completely believe that you've always known that this power was there and is restored. So it's, it's actually, I have to say diabolically brilliant. (laughs) If I can, if I can give him a compliment. Yes. He was notorious for that though. of You know, saying something later in his his ministry and saying, this is how it always was. You know, I've, I've always Mm -hmm. taught this. And it's interesting to me that, most members will just take take him at his word. They they never they don't go back and look at the the track record the the historical record to see what he actually did teach early on, and that it's nothing like what he would later teach about the nature of God. You know, a lot of things that he said. I've, I've always taught it this way. Yeah, uh, and this is one example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. So here we go to October 1840. This is where he quotes Malachi again and said that Malachi restored the authority and keys of the priesthood to perform ordinances in righteousness. Now you're so, on that first, co- you're on the second column from the left, right? Yes. The one that has the five box. Oh, yeah, yeah. October 1840. October 1840. Okay. October 1840. I'm with you. Follow along. I I don't have a cursor control for that, but I don't know if I do either. You you should. I think you could probably. Do I have to share the screen? Can you see my cursor? You can't, though. I'd have to share. No, I guess that's right. Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. I can share the screen. The the dates are there at the top, so it's it's right. Right. Pretty clear. Uh, So here again, no sealing power um, in terms of. You know, sealing people to each other, to eternal life, and so forth. No work for the dead. Simply, he restored the authority to perform ordinances in righteousness, he said. Now, that's an expression taken from um, Malachi as well. I think that might be in chapter 3, that one. That Yeah, 
in chapter three, where so, yes. the sons of Levi would offer an offering again in righteousness. In righteousness, yeah, that's Malachi three. So it's interesting that this would be a thing because what does that say about ordinances that were performed prior to his coming? Yeah, right. Baptism and all that. Yeah. Prior to 1836. And by this time, they had washings and anointings at Kirtland, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. Without that. Yeah. Interesting. And so, and by the way, he did, he said all ordinances here, not just uh, Joseph Fielding Smith said, well, what this applies to is just the ordinances of the temple. But, uh, you know, those the temple ordinances, as we practice them today, weren't really no. uh, in place at this time. So it just raises some problems. It's, it's very problematic. So let's move on to September 1842. So we're moving along in time about every year or two years Something new comes out on Elijah. Here, he says he could have given a plainer translation from the way it stands in Malachi, which is interesting because he already gave us a plainer, the, the, the real yeah. translation in 1838. And of course, before that, where did we get the the translation from the Book of Mormon, from yeah. you know the Joseph Smith translation? Weren't those inspired real translations? So here he says, I could have given a, a plainer translation. So he's gonna one-upmanship himself over what <laughs> Moroni. He's gonna uh, one-up Moroni here. He's priming his audience yeah. for further expansion of further right. power is how a skeptical approach would be. But after watching Rebecca and uh, I'm not taking off, I'm landing. Landon, <laughs> yeah, I'm not taking off, I'm landing in their podcast on Friday on the finances and the complete steadiness of the brethren. I, you know, Joseph Smith appears to me to be priming his audience for more additional power, which is always what they've wanted. Yeah. I'm just, you know, just my two cents worth. It seems like his catchphrase is, but wait, there's more, right? Every time he said, I've now revealed everything, it's all clear and plain. He's like, uh, but wait, there's more. Yeah. <laughs> when the occasion arises, a need arises, and yeah. then he can create more. That's what I mean. I, I admire his diabolical geniusness. Yes. I can't help it. I do. Yeah. Talk about the ongoing restoration. And in Joseph oh. Smith's case, it was like, this is it. This is the restoration. And then a year later, no, this is it now. Now we've got it restored. A year later, no. Now this is really it. Um, it just never stops, does it? Um, okay, so back to the next bubble. Uh, where's my mouse? Did I lose it? Okay, in September, okay, so he says he could have given a plainer translation. And this is from uh, DNC 128. He, he quotes from Malachi. He says, it's, 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 it'll suffice for my purposes here because I'm going to tell you what it means. And what it means is 
that there has to be a welding link of some kind between dispensations to link old dispensations, past dispensations to our dispensation. Okay. So now this is an interesting one. Now this is totally different again from what he's been talking about before. And he said that link is going to be through baptism for the dead. That's how we're going to link dispensations together through baptism for the dead. And this is where he introduces uh, baptism for the dead, at least in um, formally in the church. Um, so this is the first link, by the way. We've gone how many years since he came? Uh, well, this was September 6th, 1842, the heading says, of, of section yeah. 120. So we're in 1842. Yeah, from, from 1836 to 1842, six years later, he finally associates or links the coming of Elijah with some kind of salvation for the dead. Well, technically, I go back to 1831 to his Joseph Smith translation. Look, supposedly by the Spirit, by the Holy Ghost, he saw that verse was correct as it was, and there's nothing about priesthood there. That's right. That's so, correct. So we're talking 11 years. I, I see why you're starting where you are, but I'm going to take it back to 1831, and then where you're at is an extra bump in it. Yeah. If, a, if, he, if he, this was his plainer translation, I mean, that's... Uh, that's what the Joseph Smith translation was supposed to be, a plainer translation. translation. He even said that as his calling, to make the Bible plainer. That's right. So good he's point. Having, he's making stuff up. Yeah, good point. He's pulling it out of his hat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you said hat. I had to say, yeah, well, I had to make it, you know, restoration appropriate. She was, she was preempting you, Carrie. She was, Feel and like she I did was. very well. <laughs> That's fascinating. Oh, 1842, you know, this is two years later, so finally it gets into baptism. And notice, you know, we, we often think in the church about this welding link through uh, sealing people to fathers, to children, you know, dead to the living and so on, uh, doing genealogy work. But this had nothing to do with that. Uh, it was simply... If we do baptisms for the dead, for these people who have deceased, we are kind of doing some kind of linking of the fathers to the children by linking, and we'll say we're linking dispensations is what he calls it. Uh, okay, so we're going to move over to the right because I ran out of space. He, he made so many incremental Hey, hey, look at this, Charlie. Yeah, go to the right. But in verse 20 in D&C 128, now he's linking this whole theme of the Elijah priesthood of restoration with the baptism for the dead as the link and all. Now in verse 28, he's bringing back in the other uh, restored priesthood of Peter, James, and John at the Susquehanna and all that. So now he's trying to conglomerate it all because earlier... He said this is for all ordinances, 
but he completely ignored Peter, James, and John. Now he's remembering, at least it appears to me, oh, hey, by the way, let's not forget Peter, James, and John in this also. And they possess the keys of the kingdom and the dispensation of the fullness of time. So yeah. I just yeah. thought I'd point that out. That's he's bringing Holly and Gabriel and Raphael and diverse angel and Michael who detected Satan and all that jazz. Yeah. He's basically name dropping everybody he can think of and the kitchen sink in there to give some kind of credibility to his ideas. Mm-hmm. No, there's no, there's no, there's no mention of kitchen sinks. I don't, it sounded to me like you were mentioning the Ninja Turtles when you were going through, you've got Raphael, you've got yeah, everybody. Yeah. Michael. <laughs> Adam. Yep. Yep. And Michael and Adam, by the way, are separate beings in this, just so you know. I'm just saying. Yeah. And and none of these characters appear in any of the any of the contemporaneous records when they were supposed to have happened. So no. that's yeah. the, the bizarre thing. Uh so and Carrie, you mentioned an inter- interesting point, and it's part of this thing about the ongoing restoration that that it never quite gets there, it seems. And yet, Peter, James, and John presumably restored the keys of the kingdom to do everything. The keys of the dispensation of the fullness of times. I mean, what else do you need? Didn't they have the power to seal on earth what is sealed in heaven? Yes. Yeah. That's the sealing power. Yes. And yet, yeah. so it's, it's just mind-boggling that you get there, but then you're not there, you know, and it takes something else always to um, make it more miraculous, more significant. Um, it, it would be interesting to see where, how much further he would have taken it because yeah, he was really I'm going not. to yeah. very high levels in, in priesthood and, you know, becoming gods and, and it was quite remarkable. Now, I want to bring in again, not to overdo Rebecca and Landon's podcast on Friday on the church finances and that essay, but Landon made a very good point. I'm willing to bet we could find this with a little bit more research. In fact, I might ask Landon to help me with this. I'm willing to bet that at every juncture where something is added that there is a specific reason. There's something that's happening either to Joseph Smith or something that someone else, um, Joseph Smith needs these developments to happen in order to increase his own authority over people who have either been apostatizing or to try to put his enemies in place or, yeah. or what have you. Landon made a great point of that throughout the course of the history of the church from Joseph Smith all the way to Russell M. Nelson, that when events were added like this, there's an external factor in history oh, that we're yeah. not being told about. So yeah. Yeah, It doesn't happen in a vacuum. I mean, that's, that's the whole point. It doesn't at all. And much like an MLM, there always needs to be another layer, right? Another level so people can go higher up. And I feel like the phrase ongoing restoration, that's a very dangerous phrase. I mean, when I was growing up, the restoration was over. It was past tense. That's what we were taught. And we see them doing it again now for new ideas 
brought about by, like you said, Carrie, a situation where it's needed. It's the moving of the goalposts. And now it's it's just understood by everyone. It is an ongoing restoration. But when I was growing up, people my age, that was unheard of. It was done. So again, moving those goalposts for what purpose? We don't know. Yeah. The church has been restored. The authority has been restored. It's done. You know, now it's building the kingdom. Um, yeah. Now we just have ongoing revelation, yeah. guidance to do that. But in terms of restoration, it's a misnomer. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Good points. Um, and, and you're very correct. I, you know, we're going through this just talking about just bizarre changes that he's making. And yet uh, you bring up a, an excellent point that there are, you know, th this is motivated by things happening in the history, in the early history of the church. The challenge of his authority, uh, that was a big one uh, by Missouri, the Missouri Saints. And, uh, you know, he, that's when he started bringing in these angelic messengers and by name and saying, hey, I've got, I've got some real credentials here. You know, don't challenge me. Yeah. And then Kirtland, the complete debacle at Kirtland, and half the church left him. You yeah. know, and he said, oh, damn, I better find a way to, hey, maybe I can get some patriarchal priests to go and hear from the book of Abraham or something so that I can show my lineage is directly biblical or whatever, you know. Dan yeah. Vogel's big on that. So. Yeah. Oh, by the way, hi, Dan Vogel. I see you in the audience. Geoplanet Jane, hi to you too. Okay, now let's get back to our regularly streaming argy-bargy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I know Dan Vogel has some excellent um, yeah. background to these changes where he could point specifically to and, and identify the specific events that were taking place when these things happened. We're hoping to get together and do a series on those. Once right. his book, by the way, his book is supposed to be out in May. Mm. A big, thick 800-page one. I'm going to give a quick shout-out to that. Dan Vogel's new book is at the printers. Yes! So just in a couple months, we're going to be, I think all of us are going to be ranting and raving about that one. So, And it will include the subject. So. All right. All right. Where are we off to? Okay. So we're, we're moving to the right at the bottom, along the bottom from September 1842 now to August 1843. Another year has passed. Uh, here he talks about, Joseph Smith talks about the mission of Elijah, what he did. And here he says that he restored the power to seal couples to eternal life. By the way, I, I haven't included sources here just to keep this simple. Just the dates and the essence in the book, it talk, It gives the exact quotations and sources. But here he restores the power, he says, to seal couples to eternal life, which also secures their posterity. So this is tied in also to section 132. If you read that carefully, uh, when a couple is, is married, in the temple by that authority they are sealed so that their calling and election is made sure now in section 132 and in lds discourse at the time sealing wasn't the sealing of a man to a woman the sealing was being sealed up to eternal life so when you read about 
ceilings taking place in the temple, um, it was these people are being sealed to eternal life as husband and wife. So that would develop into the second anointing, for example, and that becomes the new way to gain eternal life. Even though the elders were sealing up individuals and in fact, entire congregations as early as 1831, because that's what? when had the sealing power to do that. So again, you know, what did those sealings mean that they were doing? Um, so what we're saying is we have a convoluted head-on collision with all kinds of contradictions. It, it, it collides with its history, collides with itself. You know, it's just, it's, it's bizarre. I'll drink to the ceiling power. <laughs> I think the word we're looking for, the words are hot mess. It was a hot mess. <laughs> Good. Good way to describe it. So here he restored, this is the first link of Elijah to the ceiling power, 1843. He came in 1836. So we have seven years later um, yeah. that he finally gets around to ceiling power. That wasn't even on his radar, on Joseph Smith's radar until then. And, and yet Elijah presumably restored that when he appeared in the temple. And by the way, that, that temple appearance is very intriguing because there's only uh, you know, this, this secondhand reporting. I think Warren Cowdery uh, reported the proceedings and, and we get that account from him. Uh, it doesn't get talked about or, or shown for several years after it happened uh, in the scriptures, you know, put canonized. Uh, but it, so it's just really strange, but these figures just appear and they don't ordain, they don't confer authority. They're just declaring kind of dispensations. So you have um, Elijah appearing, Moses, and then mistakenly, mistakenly Elias and as separate. And then Elias is said to have appeared who is this Old Testament prophet that we have no idea who he could be, bearing a Greek name, here's this Hebrew prophet. Um, what in the world is he doing with the name Elias? Uh, Joseph Smith did the similar thing with um, Isaiah and Isaiah. So the New Testament uses the name Isaiah, which is the Greek form of Isaiah, and Joseph Smith mistakenly assumes that that's some other prophet that lived during the days of Abraham. See, he's getting his Hebrew and his Greek Septuagint mixed up. Yeah, and assuming then that they're real people. Right. Now, there is an instance where he knew, he acknowledged that Elias and Elijah were the same person. And yet... Uh, there's one instance I can't put my finger on it right now, but um, he, he, this is another example of he just disregards things that he does acknowledge at one time. 
So for example, he, he defines soul in the, in the Doctrine and Covenants section 93 as the, the body and spirit, right? That mm -hmm. constitutes the soul of man. But in all subsequent teachings, he totally disregards that definition and just refers to the souls as spirits because that's the, you know, it, it's the normal way of talking about souls. He never he never brought in uh, the eternal intelligence much after he translated the book of Abraham to be part of the soul either, did he? In fact, the church still doesn't like that. They Ever since B.H. Roberts argued with Orson Pratt or whoever it was they were arguing with on what is an intelligence, and we still don't know, the brethren will not clarify that. They just basically said, oh, for Pete's sake, just... Let's talk about something else. Yeah. There's something called intelligence, and we'll leave it at that. I think and, it's and an example, what you're talking about, how he will say something and then disregard it and call it something else. That's what happens when you make things up. If it really happened, if it's truthful, you, for the most part, remember and you can repeat it. If you have fabricated something, it is very difficult years, even months later, to remember exactly how you told the story. And so you're going to say something else. And I've always thought mm. that was, to me, that was sort of the smoking gun, that he could not remember what he said before. If it had really happened, you would you would have some semblance. <laughs> it would sound sort of similar, but it doesn't. It doesn't. He just moves yeah. on, you know, almost completely ignoring what he said in the past. So I think that is, uh, to me, evidence of fabrication. Yeah. Well, and uh, even Richard Bushman said as much that the later appearance of these angelic beings, like we talked about, where they weren't mentioned earlier, he said, really... Could be taken at. Yeah, it, it smacks the fabrication. Yeah, yeah. He used the word fabrication. Um, yeah. Well, he didn't come out right and say it. I just yeah. recently did a podcast, but but he said it could be taken as that. It raises the, the close enough for Bushman. Yeah. That's what he meant. Yeah. No, because sure that's very sure much. Like oh boy. If it looks like a duck, acts like a duck, sounds like a duck, farts like a duck, smells like a duck, and feels like a duck, then perhaps it could be a turkey. <laughs> that just doesn't work. <laughs> that's great. All right. Okay. We're moving on now to January 1844, next year, following year. Here well, now it seems to be steadily progressing, yeah, each year by year, it's progressing. And after he said two prior times that no, this is the correct translation, this is how it should be, and now he's coming again a third time to say it should have been translated. The word turn in that prophecy should have been translated bind or, or seal. And I'm thinking, you know, if, if that's the case, why didn't you tell us that earlier when you said, here's how it should, here's the correct translation. Um, so now suddenly it's bind or seal. And this is the first time he introduced this concept of sealing dead people together with ourselves to eternal life. So not only can living 
people, couples be married and be sealed to eternal life, but dead people can also, that work can be performed for them and they can be sealed to eternal life together with us. Okay, so with Carrie not here, we can speed through this. Now. He is gone. I have a question for you really Sorry, quickly. No, I've I'm always looking, wondered, <laughs> did you have to go get a snack? I get that, I understand. <laughs> no, I, I always wonder what is the motivation of him? I mean, if we've kind of decided it's not really a revelation, it's not really happening. What is his motivation for that? Why introduce that as a concept? What does he gain from it? Um, why? I've always wondered that. Why introduce this? Yeah. It, you know, I always, always come back to this uh, comment that Joseph Smith made that the scriptures as he reads them or as he read them, he said, don't always accord with the testimony of the Holy Ghost or the witness of the Holy Ghost to me. So it's in his mind. He's got this idea, it seems like, about what something should say from his point of view that he thinks it's real. You know, it's almost delusional, isn't it? It's, it's like, you know, whatever I think it should be, Right. You know, we have some elective officials that we've we know that <laughs> operate a lot that way. But it's you know, it's just whatever I want it to be, whatever I think it right. is, it's that's real. How, that's that's reality. That's no, and that makes sense. But I just wonder the whole concept of, of sealing people together, you know, was he really trying to be kind? I mean, was he really trying to say you can be with your loved ones? Or was it a purpose where he's sort of holding people hostage here on earth saying you need to live a certain way, do what I say, and then we can seal to your relatives? I mean, did he think that far? Or did he even have a plan? That's what I, I keep trying yeah. to look at for his purposes yeah. for even introducing this. Yeah. You know, it's almost, though, like in section 132, as it states there, you have to almost you have to commit the unpardonable sin not to get these blessings. Yeah, exactly. You know, anybody can get this. So yeah. it's like, hey, I'm giving this out for free. You know, it's like I'm not holding you hostage to say you have to do this, but rather Wow, don't you want this? You can you can have this. This is it's here for free. Come and take it. it it's interesting. I'm sure it both of them are worth it. No, I know, it, but I feel like now there are strings attached to all no. to everything. I mean, absolutely, no. you know. I mean, that's that's a huge problem that you'll never see your family again unless you live a certain way. Oh, yes. I mean, I was talking to someone today, I think it was Landon again, um, just about the fact that sometimes missionaries go out and they meet a family who believes in their mind they will be together forever in whatever way, and the missionaries promptly tell them, Oh no, you will not, you know, until you do this. So it does seem there are strings you know, some way, but I just, I always try to understand what his motivation could have possibly been for, you know, all these things that he put into place. And, you know, there's got to be something, there's got to be a reason, a method to the madness, I guess, is yeah. what I'm trying to figure out. I just want to say something. You mentioned that Joseph said the word turn means to bind, bind or seal. Yes. Bind or seal. The Hebrew word is shuv. The the shuva is uh, the the hashuv. Sorry, and he will turn. The hashuv, uh, shuv definitely means turn. Mm. 
I will look into that Hebrew for you just to let you guys know. But I mean, you want to keep going while I look into this, but that's, <laughs> oh, that's great. I don't, I, we have the, I don't see where it means actual Hebrew. I'm looking into the Hebrew right now. Yeah. I don't yeah. See. So that's the other thing that's mind boggling is who is he kidding here? I mean, you know, why would he say the, the translation should be this when that's why so By this time, he's meant he's he's studied under Sykes, and he has his uh, uh, that other Jewish scholar who is the Kabbalist Nybauer, yeah, with him. I, I don't know if he would have gotten it from Nybauer or not, but Nybauer being a good Ashkenazi Jew of, or Sephardic, I can't remember which now, but uh, there's no way if if it didn't mean bind. There's no way he would let Joseph Smith say that if he was looking at that. He would say, no, the Hebrew it uses is turn, turn or return, mm -hmm. go back, come mm -hmm. back. I do believe that. I'm going to keep looking. You guys keep no, talking. No, that's <laughs> I'm going to go back to that part real quick. So Here, expounding on the chart. <laughs> so it's not plant. It's not, you know, we're going to weld something. It's not turn, I mean, a seal or bind. So, yeah, interesting. So it, here it seems like on. he uses verbs to whatever his purposes are, right? You, you yeah. can say anything means anything. Yeah. Is means is, right? It, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. You know, it, it would be one thing to say, I think Malachi had this in mind when he said this. Right. But to say it should be translated this way, I mean, uh, we we have the Hebrew there, you know. Right. It's but you have like, to think his followers like, didn't. You know, his followers probably were not versed. And if the prophet says this is what it is and it looks all fancy and exciting because it's in a different language, it, you know, they must have, it, it worked. It yeah, served its purpose for what he was trying to it, do. It's amazing how they bought into it. Yeah. Uh, so we go just a few months later to March 1844. And this is the first time he talks about sealing children to their parents. So this whole thing of sealing, um, you know, as I mentioned, sealing couples to each other, that wasn't how the word seal was used um, in Joseph Smith's ministry. He always used it in the, in the sense of sealing up to eternal life. Here's the first occurrence of sealing individuals to each other, which is what we believe today is what Elijah did. And so you can see how all of these different teachings get kind of cobbled together to come up with the current perspective of what Elijah actually restored. Uh, and included in this, of course, is there's we could take this on to where men were sealed to men and those kinds mm -hmm. of things. And, or dynastic sealings. That was always yes, very interesting yes, to me, that, that concept. So the whole way this continued to play out in subsequent decades in the church is also very fascinating. I'm going to stop here because <laughs> this is where at least Joseph Smith's doctrinal changes end. Right. But of course, today, when we learn about sealing, we learn that it's always been this way from the beginning of the restoration and also from the beginning of, you know, antiquity, basically in the Old Testament, and New Testament. Right. We, we 
never learn that there's any kind of waffling or change. It's always, you know, and that's attractive to people that we are doing exactly what was done in the ancient church. I mean, I actually feel some people today believe the ancient church had relief society, had, you know, you go to primary singing time. I, I just, it's, it boggles my mind, as we've said, yeah. how there's no understanding Number one, there really wasn't an ancient church <laughs> and yes. everything looks so different, but I understand why people find it attractive. It makes you feel attached to something throughout history and antiquity. It makes you feel attached to humanity, I feel, mm -hmm. in a way, and it's yeah. very attractive. So yeah. I do understand that. Yeah, I mean, it's a great feeling to be part of that. Mm -hmm. We are mm -hmm. part of yeah. the Old and New Testament legacy. Yes. We are there with them. Yep. Um, yeah, and and you have Elijah appearing on the mm -hmm. on the Mount of Olives with, or the Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament, and why yeah. was he there? Not just to represent the prophets uh, in in you know the law. Moses was there, and Elijah, and, and Moses represented the the law. Elijah, the prophets, but no, Elijah was there to convey his sealing power to to yeah transfer that 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 he never had, that he was never associated with in real life even. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. And by the way, this is one of the other confusions that Joseph Smith enters into with this Elijah Elias thing because he goes in and changes the appearance of Elijah to be the appearance of John the Baptist because he thought John the Baptist was... Uh, Reincarnated. Yeah, the reincarnated Elijah, and that he's the one that should be appearing. On I'm, I'm going to do some videos on that. You really got me humming on that one. That, that is actual. There's some serious biblical scholarship on that subject that I think uh, maybe we three can get together and work something up hmm. on just that. So, um, by the way, just I, I don't mean to interrupt you. I don't mean to be a dork here, but it is my show. And I can come and go as I please. Right. You did not tell me this when you asked me to co-host that you routinely get up and just leave the, the shot. I mean, what are I we was, supposed to think? I was translated and I told him to ah, let me come back. Uh, you're Elijah, talking to Elias by the refrigerator. I get it. If, if it would have meant bind, you guys. Now, there are several different Hebrew words for bind. However, the way Joseph Smith, if I understand this correctly, I'll do some more research on this. Kasar is the word for bind, and it that's what it would have been. It wouldn't have been shuv or heshuva. Uh, to, shuv is to return, to turn, um, to come back. But bind being kasar means to tie or bind something together. Now, that's what Joseph Smith was talking about. Interesting. Right? So he can't just ad-lib like that and get away with it when it comes to the Bible. That's why I got into the Hebrew and the Greek, so I could double-check things like that. So, in my opinion, based on what very little time I've spent, what, 10 minutes on this, I'm saying Joseph Smith is making this up. <laughs> you it heard it here first. The rabbi has spoken. <laughs> this the is <laughs> That's my revelation, and I'm sticking with it. That's good. <laughs> anyway. Okay, I see our time is really going by. Let me let me finish up that chart real quick. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Second one. Uh, 
So this is just, to me, it's, it's fascinating to trace historically this development of the Elijah return and, and what he actually did in his mission and how convoluted it is, how contradictory it is, how nonsensical it is in light of, you know, the actual historical events that were taking place and, and the way it was talked about earlier. So, but there is another uh, strand to this, and it's part of the pedigree of Malachi 4, 5, and 6, which is its occurrence, its appearance in the New Testament to refer to John the Baptist. And Jesus said that he came as Elijah, or the Greek Elias, because he was in the spirit and power of Elijah. So not necessarily that he was Elijah incarnate, though that may be uh, a perception, but at least in Matthew 17, it was the spirit and power of Elias. And Joseph Smith picked up on this, the, the, especially the word restore, that he would restore all things. And I explained in this chapter, in the previous chapter, that and Adam Clark, I quote Adam Clark, that it, he uses the word restore here because it's from the Septuagint. What he means, he was just simply quoting Malachi that he would turn the hearts of the children of the fathers, fathers of the children, and the disobedient to the prophets, you know, to God. Um, that's what that's all about. There's nothing to see here in terms of restoring all things like in Acts 3, 19 to 21. But yeah. Joseph Smith didn't know that, and he thought they were connected. And so he modified that passage in Matthew. He appended to it that Elias is going to restore all things as the prophets have written. Prophets, So he's bringing in the Acts thing, Peter's prophecy in Acts, of as spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets, to tie that in here, because if we're going to restore all things, that's what all the prophets have spoken of and talked about. So from there, he goes on this campaign of the Elias of the Restoration, which in numerous different uh, sermons and, and scriptures, he equates that Elias of the Restoration with Christ himself, with the angel Gabriel, with John the Revelator, with an Old Testament prophet in, in uh, DNC 110, right, who appeared and restored all things. There's a restoration of all things. And um, Joseph Smith was another one. There were several others. So, you know, everybody's part of this. This this has been so confusing that in today's Mormon thinking, in fact, in Mormon doctrine, according to Bruce R. McConkie, Elias is a composite person because he's everybody who had any hand in, you know, involved in bringing back anything. They are this Elias of the restoration. I mean, it's just wow, it's just you know, where that has gone is, is mind-boggling. McConkie is the best thing ever given to us critics. I'm yeah. telling you. 
He's the great harmonizer, the reconciler to, to say, hey, it's all fine. There's no contradiction here, no inconsistency. No prophet ever contradicts another prophet, and he makes it work. See, in a way, if I can to interject just briefly, I, I apologize for interrupting, but really seriously, this what we're seeing here, in my opinion, is they would give us the appearance that they are much more interested in making sure that Joseph Smith's information and translation or inspiration is true rather than just trying to understand the Bible on its own terms. Yes. They Mormonize the Bible. Right? Yes. And to understand the historical record. We should be studying Joseph Smith by the historical record, not by what he said later about things that happened that didn't happen because the historical record flat out contradicts it. Yeah. yeah. It's a yeah. challenge. Well, he's, he's left us a, a very difficult legacy. I mean, everyone basically has to be um, his PR agent going forward. He has to look good. He has to be correct. And that is that means the mental gymnastics and I would say the self-deception um, is just off the charts because you can't accept, oh, he might be incorrect. So you have to spin it every which way to try to make sure that he comes out. I guess, smelling like roses. So he's left quite a legacy for all these men, historians, church leaders, uh, members going forward. It's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he came up with so many different characters, restoring so many different types, styles, strengths, and lengths of priesthoods that mm -hmm. McConkie has to posit Elias is a composite individual. Is it no wonder that no real scholar pays much attention, not only to our Egyptologists, but to our biblical scholars? I mean, that's just silly. Yeah. And I am trying to be charitable, I promise. Yes. Yeah. It, it's challenging. And, you know, we just, we just don't have respect. And, you know, the latest uh, survey that was taken about, you know, how outsiders perceive yeah. Mormons kind of reflects this image that we have that, oh, you guys are from another planet. Um, yeah. And the chapter, you know, we just barely touched on. Now, I, have, I have great hopes that my good friend from BYU, and he's currently teaching there, Trevin Hatch, we are working on bringing out some information on the Jewish Jesus. And he has assured me that he said, I am not going to Mormonize Jesus on your show. And I said, well, don't worry. I won't let you get away with it. But he, he's going to try to to up the game for the good of the the um Mormon scholars at BYU to show them that it's okay to let Jesus be who he said he was and don't try to Mormonize him. Let's understand Jesus on his terms. And I'm very much looking forward, just like you're doing with us, Charlie, you're, you're helping us understand uh, Joseph Smith on his terms Trevin is hopefully going to do that with Jesus. So just so you know, there is somewhat of a movement toward trying to rectify that lousy image, but they only have themselves to blame for it. So, yeah. And, and, you know, I've said this before, but I have the highest respect for uh, much of the LDS scholarship in the church, the rising generation of scholars, 
you know, they are top notch for the most yeah. part. Yeah, um, they really are. They recognize that we've got to stop making these presuppositions about uh, and using Joseph Smith as an authority on everything. We don't take a scriptural passage and understand it based on what Joseph Smith said about it. That's not a very good uh, scholarly approach, nor is it yeah. correct to do it. Yeah. So um, would you... Uh... Would you would you like to take questions? Well, let me take some questions. I think you know there there's some other prophecies, Rebecca, as you mentioned, um, this connection that Joseph Smith gave us to the Old Testament prophets, to the New Testament writers. You know, he we're part of, we're we're the people that they were writing about, yeah. um, and it makes you feel very important, right? Very significant. But the sad truth is that he got it wrong on just about everything he talked about when it comes to trying to interpret scriptures, especially prophecy and their application to us. It just does not work. No. And you know, the, the odd thing is, and, and I've said this before too, he got some things right early on. Early on, he had like this, the view of, of uh, Malachi 4, 5. For the first eight years of the church, it, it, they didn't have any problem with it. They saw it just like it's supposed to be seen and understood. But then suddenly he starts introducing and chipping away and, and recrafting, reframing and reinterpreting. Uh, and it just gets. Well, it, it, I, I can't disagree with you, uh, but in, in some respects, I'm just reading in the. Miller's book on the Gospel of Mark is Midrash this afternoon, based on something you told me earlier last night, Charlie. But uh, the theme, the idea of Midrash is to is to uh, bring the Scripture up to date. But the the theme wasn't to contradict the original context. Right. And here is where I I can't help but see Joseph Smith. Correct me if I'm wrong, Rebecca or Charlie. I, I can't see how Joseph Smith is not contradicting what what so many original. And in fact, he continues what you've shown us tonight on this Malachi thing is he, he finally gave us the answer. And, and it's plain. The translation is correct. Then a few years later, well, you know, if I would have translated it. Uh, more openly, more better, it would have meant this. Mm -hmm. And then a year later, he goes, "Well, come to think of it, it that is not that is not midrash. That is creative imagination, which I believe Joseph Smith attributed to inspiration. So anything he thought he thought was revelation, so he could just throw it all together. I think we're seeing the fruits of that, don't you? Yeah. Will I be off base in thinking that? No, I don't think so at all. I think it was his imagination. I mean, almost maybe like automatic writing. Remember that Mormonism Live episode on that where your own thoughts, you feel like, you know, mistakenly, yes, but you really do feel that you're receiving that. I also feel like 
as you talk about these new scholars that are being more authentic and more realistic about things, I think that's a, a good approach and it's okay because eventually I think we will be told we misunderstood what Joseph was saying. I think they can still do that without throwing him under the bus. We are the ones that misunderstood or the early saints misunderstood. I think that they can accomplish that, move it forward to be more realistic and authentic just simply by putting the burden of it on early saints on us, we didn't understand. Because we've seen that with other things now, too. It's our fault. Interesting. Our fault. It's our fault. Yeah, it's, it's our, our fault. fault. Yeah, it is our fault. I'm not reading the scriptures with the spirit. you dang right. Yeah. I'm reading it with the Hebrew and the Greek. <laughs> <laughs> no one does that. You are, <laughs> oh, yeah, you are top it. tier. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, I'm top dodo. Yeah. No, I'm not dodo. No, wait, I take that back. Elder Holland has that copy written. So. Oh, dear. Ooh, those are fighting words. <laughs> those are. Let's I start a petition. Dare, I still don't dare go the Bill rap, Bill uh, Real route and say, liar, liar, pants on fire. But boy, there's many times when I could. So yeah. anyway, they're trying to understand stuff through the lens of Joseph Smith. Mm -hmm. I, I now see that as the problem. But how do we convince them? Right? That's the question. So, audience, well, that, that, that comes back that culture, the culture of certainty in the church. Yes. That culture of, as much as they deny it, of infallibility. Joseph Smith never taught us wrong. He right. never led us astray. He can't lead us astray. No. Um, it's just, we have to look at these people as really fallible and uh and they messed up all the way they muddled through their entire yeah and yet it's the living prophet that's the most important don't follow the dead prophets and yet no living prophet dares contradict joseph smith and right. the dnc and the problem with the idea that they were muddling through is that they were supposed to be inspired every step of the way. So God is the one that's a muddler. If I can use that term, he's the one that made the mistakes because he was directing everything Joseph did. So no, no, it's very they, problematic. Take it to the top. No. Rebecca, they were just speaking as men. Yes. Uh, if Joseph and right. they weren't speaking as women, of course, because women weren't allowed to speak. So yes, I agree with you. Oh, see, in this case, Rebecca, dear, you're just speaking as a woman. That's right. I'll turn off my mic now. Why don't no, I no, just... No, 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 no. That's them saying it. We're saying... I know, no, I know. Shut up. Keep sharing yep. your wisdom. We love this. No, yeah. I know, I know. What, what, a, what a topic. What a topic. Yeah. So any questions from the audience? Do you guys... Oh, uh, here's one for you, Rebecca. Oh, dear. Rebecca is oh, biblically picking your real last name. I always have to tell this story. No, it is not. So I have my master's in library and information science. I got that from BYU. And Biblioteca is in Spanish and Latin, which I was also a Latin minor. Um, that means library. So my roommates at BYU used to tease me and say, Rebecca, Rebecca of the Biblioteca, which was kind of cute. It rhymes with Biblioteca. I know. So when I started running different book clubs, I have my own book club, the Good Book Club, virtual for posted nuanced Mormons. I helped John DeLynn run the Mormon Stories Book Club. I just thought it would be fun to have a little, a little pseudonym, sort of. So I, I have had somebody refer to me as Becky Bibliotechi. That's kind of funny. 
RFM has suggested I just go by Bibby. So it's kind of morphing, much like or Joseph Becky. Smith's prophecies. Yes. So <laughs> but yes, that's the story of it. Although, <laughs> I don't know. It's just a funny pseudonym, but good question. <laughs> Doug Vincent says, I love that, Rebecca. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's, he's a good man, too. So, okay. Um, any other questions, you guys? We have had a, there's a lot to think about. I got to confess, you have really thrown a, some. Well, sorry, we, we spent so much time in the weeds on this, but this it's is okay. just, you know, there are other passages like this that Joseph takes and he, you know, says, oh, it means this, it means this, and, and changes, shifts uh, throughout. It's just, yeah, amazing. Yeah, no, no, this is, um, there, I've I've already seen a couple people say no, go the long form like John Delin. There's a lot of stuff here, and keep going. We love what Charlie's bringing out and all, but I can promise you, we will bring Charlie back. Would you like to co-host with me again, Rebecca, when we have Charlie back? And oh, if you will school. have me, I let's would love to. Yeah, no, it's so fascinating. I love it. Now, see, this next chapter, again, Charlie said, you did three chapters, Charlie. The fifth one is Doctrinal Truths Restored. That's going to be a fun topic. I'm just saying. I don't mean to act excited. but mm. So what's the date next week? I'm going to have Rebecca and Landon on, on April 2nd. On the 2nd, so, yep. Charlie... May I have you back next week and we'll do this chapter? Is that conceivably uh, next Sunday? That, that is possible. No, I can't come next Sunday, unfortunately. I'm going to a polygamist comedian show. <laughs> I mean, who isn't? Come on. Maybe, but, I'll nab, maybe I'll nab Radio Free Mormon or Doug Vincent or someone. <sighs> Or Dan Vogel. Yeah. Dan Vogel yeah. might be fun to do. Or I know Steve Pinecker was interested in coming on. He's always interested, interesting too. Who? So you have lots of choices. Steve Pinecker <laughs> might be fun. Yeah. Steve. No, he he's really fascinating to talk to. He'd be good. And he's always available. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a good man. But then so, again, so is RFM. So I don't know. Maybe, oh my goodness. What if you had a show with Steve and RFM? Now that would be something. Mm. I hear they're arch enemies. It would be fascinating. It would. <laughs> yeah, but Charlie and I are almost best friends, so we could have a competition. That's right. So next week is going to be difficult for me because I have a commitment that's kind of tentative with a grandson, and um, I think that's going to preclude this. D don't worry about it. It's, it's all good. I will... Uh, I will figure something out between now and then. Um, here's, a, here's a suggestion. You should have Dan Vogel on to talk about this scuttle going on with the translation of the Book of Mormon using the Urim and Thummim, not the seer stone. So there was that an article in the trip today. blowing up. Yeah, right? And that's Dan Vogel, what do you think? You're on next Sunday, you're here in the chat. Commit now. That, 
that article drove me crazy because yeah. I don't think anybody knows what the Urim and Thummim really was. I mean, I, you know, I did a, when we read early Mormonism in the magical worldview for our book club, we had someone dressed up with the Urim and Thummim. I mean, it was literally dice, right? Oh. It was rolling, but it was not any method of translation. It was simply a dice game. Well, Don Bradley, Don Bradley in his lost 116 pages has some interesting theorizing that he throws out there. That might yeah. be kind of fun to compare and contrast, but it's a hot topic. Now notice when I call him out, he quits posting. <laughs> oh, Dan has left the chat. Is yeah. that it? <laughs> well, he says he can't. His computer's on the blink. So it looks like, yeah. And Doug Vincent mentions this, and this is where Don Bradley talks about it. Lucy Maxmith said it was two triangle-shaped diamonds in glass frame. Yeah, and and Don Bradley has some pictures and stuff. It's all fascinating. It's real interesting. I'll have to Lucy read that. in the sky with diamonds. Maybe I'll find someone to do this with me next, or I'll do it by myself. I mean, people don't mind, I don't think. I don't know. Sometimes I get pretty radical. I get up and leave and grab a book every now and then. It's disgusting. <laughs> you say you leave to get a book. I'm not sure I believe that. <laughs> hey. I think it might be a snack. <laughs> ooh, ooh, yeah. Uh, Geoplanet Jane has it right. Light and truth is the Urim and Thummim. But Patty Cake has another interesting point. Urim and Thummim is a urinary tract infection. <laughs> 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 I cannot believe you did that for me, Patty Cake. Thumbs up. Hey, okay, went there. This is my thumb, and this is for you. <laughs> oh my! All right, you guys. Listen, we are we are going to call it good tonight. Thank you for all your attendance. Oh, I do have one final announcement. Well, there's so many of you here. No joke. I have uploaded 30 new podcasts mm -hmm. on the backyardprofessor.org. Let me see if I can get it. I don't. Here we go. Yes. This is the, uh, my podcast channel is on the backyardprofessor.org. Um, I have 30 brand new podcasts. A lot of my really, really popular backyard professor responds are on there. And I have, and they range anywhere from two minutes to an hour up to up to an hour where I'm going in depth. And I mean, I'm a busy boy. I didn't realize it until I uploaded so much, but I have responded to Jeffrey Holland. I have responded to um, Bednar, David Bednar, Brad Wilcox, Kevin, whoever, whatever of the 70s, Russell M. Nelson, Dallin H. Oaks, Henry B. Iron, Hugh W. Nibley. I mean, I am just astonished at my zeal, but I don't, it's not zeal without knowledge. It's zeal with a little bit of knowledge. I'm not entirely without knowledge. So come and have a look at backyardprofessor.org. Listen. That's where you hear only. So anyway, all right, that's enough personal touting my own uh, attempts at trying to obfuscate reality. So, so okay, you guys, thank you so much. We're going to head out. It's been a lot of fun. You guys stick around. I'll talk to you behind the scenes. Don't leave. I know my, my hero, Mark Schultz, skipped out on me. It's all good. I got a hold of him later and cussed him out. I pinned him to the mat, and then he grabbed me with one hand and flicked me off like I was a marshmallow. Mm -hmm. so, all right, you guys. Love y'all. We got to head out. 
We will catch up to you next week. Don't forget Mormonism Live on Wednesday night. Mormonish podcasts. When are those? Right. Always Friday morning. But you can Friday find us on YouTube. We have all our episodes. And the one that you were discussing is number 20, the one that we just uh, just released. So that's the one that you were talking about. So yep. excellent podcast. I'm so not kidding. Eye-opening. I honestly thought I understood LDS history. This will open your eye. You'll love it. You're going to thank me for telling you. You're going to thank Rebecca for making it. And you're going to thank Charlie for sitting there and supporting it. There it is. <laughs>